We have, we have several um, visitors who are here today, and I want to thank you for being here as support to um, fathers. Uh, I, I will say there's one visitor here today that came by the office Friday morning and introduced himself to Chris, and, and he said to Chris that he, he's about to leave, I think, right now, Jeff Saunders. Um, <laughs> You're going to switch places, but that's good that you're going to go to the end because I'm going to call you up in a second because Jeff told Chris that he sang better than Laura, and most people didn't. <laughs> most people, most people didn't know that, and so Jeff, I just want to invite you to come on up and. You know, oh, I got it. I understand. Uh, well, our our text this morning is. Only two verses, and it's from Exodus 20, verses 14 and 15. Um, I want to read those two verses to you. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And this morning, I want us to begin by asking what it means for us to be in the image and likeness of God. According to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it means that we create and that we work. It means producing that which is good from a spirit of love and unity with an eye to bless. Being in God's image helps to set what biblical thinkers call the creation mandate. It is a mandate specifically spelled out for us in Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, as well as in Genesis 2.24 and 25. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. But in Genesis chapter 3, we find that the creation mandate was distorted. Sin entered the world. For one thing, the man and the woman become ashamed of their nakedness. For another thing, life now would involve toil and hardship. I think the seventh and eighth commandments address these distortions. Too often the church has avoided, I believe to its detriment, the topic of sex and sexuality. Perhaps you have heard the old joke of a minister who decided to do something different one Sunday morning. He said, today I'm going to say a single word and you're going to help me preach. Whatever I say, I want you to sing the first him that comes to your mind. So the pastor shouted out, cross. Immediately the congregation began to sing the old rugged cross. The pastor hollered amazing, uh, hollered grace. And the congregation, I gave it away, started to sing amazing grace. Next, he proclaimed power. And so the people rose and sang out, there is power in the blood. And finally, he said, sex. And everyone began to look around nervously at each other. They had no idea what to do. It was an awkward moment. 
when suddenly a 87-year-old grandmother stood up and began to sing Precious Memories. Um, the, the truth is that sex is not something to be ashamed of. It is something to be celebrated. It is something to enjoy. We read in Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The seventh commandment then celebrates the beauty of sex in the confines of God's design for marriage by forbidding adultery. One man, one woman, faithfully united in marriage to be fruitful and to multiply. Song of Solomon 2 verse 16 records that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. We read in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, that a husband and a wife yield their bodies to one another and to no one else. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 4 says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Paul communicates in Romans 1, 24 to 27, that the distortion of sex and sexuality exchanges truth for a lie. Simply put, marital infidelity is a distortion. 60% of marriages that end in divorce are attributed to extramarital affairs. I do not think it a coincidence that thou shalt not commit adultery follows the command of thou shalt not murder. Adultery murders marriages. What is striking is that the majority of people who engage in adulterous relationships will seek to keep them hidden. They do not go about in broad daylight having an affair, at least most don't. Rather, they sneak around in the dark. Deep down, anyone can identify with the shame of adultery. But marital infidelity extends beyond sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our Lord and Savior so often applied what we might refer to as an inside-outside rule. In other words, sin begins inwardly and works itself outwardly. It means we must guard our hearts and our minds against sexual distortion. Psalm 101.3 reads, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Think about the vast pornography industry. You've got magazines, 
strip clubs, cable channels, and the instant accessibility of the internet. Pornography does not communicate sexual realities, but it promotes a false spirit of dominion that harms a person's heart and mind. Pornography is a form of marital infidelity, and it is a distortion. Like with extramarital affairs, those who view pornography most often do it in secret, dark places. Deep down, people can identify the shamefulness of it. And pornography murders marriages. The violation of marriage also happens before wedding bells even sound. Nearly 70% of couples in America now live together before getting married. Of significance, those who live together before marriage report higher levels of marital dissatisfaction. Doing it our way and not God's way murders marriages. The growing trend of cohabitation is just as prominent among those within the church as those who are outside it. Among professing Christians under the age of 45, most have either already practiced cohabitation or have plans to do so. A recent article in Christianity Today reported that this is the new norm among young professing evangelicals. David Ayers says, it is stunning that this has quietly come to pass among adherents to a form of Christianity that emphasizes obedience to an inerrant Bible, forbids all sex outside marriage, and emphasizes being distinct from the world. But should we be stunned? Is it stunning in light of the fact that the church has rarely spoken in healthy ways about the beauty of sex? Is it stunning in light of the fact that society today almost completely ignores sexual distortions, both inside and outside the church, out of fear of offending someone's personal inclinations? The whole area of sexual relationships has been reduced to the level of personal desire and personal preference. And people will protest that their feelings are so strong that whatever they choose to do, it must be right. It makes me think of Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic novel, The Scarlet Letter. I don't know if you've read it or if you were assigned to read it and then you get the cliff notes, I don't know. But in that novel, Hester Prynne and Arthur Dimsdale engage in sexual relations outside of wedlock. And Hester becomes pregnant. When she refuses to identify the father, the Puritan society shuns her by making her wear a scarlet A on her chest. Hester deeply loved Dimsdale, so she boldly bears the letter. She did not want to leave the village because the man that she adored, the man that she loved, was there. Near the end of the novel, 
the couple meet in the forest. And Dimsdale is just riddled with guilt. And Hester looks at him and says, what we did had a consecration of its own. In other words, she contends that the love they felt for one another justified their sinful action. Dimsdale initially hears from Hester and follows her lead. He comes to believe that somehow he can secretly run away with her. Only this proves to be a slippery slope. Hawthorne shows that once a person replaces what God has intended in his order, so to pursue personal inclinations, then anything goes. Dimsdale, as he's walking back to the village, begins to have all kinds of immoral thoughts towards others. However, Fortunately for Dimsdale, he does not run off with Hester. Instead, he chooses to confess his sin and experience God's grace. In doing so, we learn that it was the only way that Dimsdale could have escaped a man named Roger Chillingworth, the man who tormented him throughout the novel, the man who represents our great accuser. In 1 John 1, verse 9, we read, If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Whatever the ways any of us have ever distorted God's design for sex, we can experience forgiveness through Jesus Christ. When we acknowledge our sin as sin and we choose to follow him rather than the distortions that this world presents. It is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Earlier, I said I did not think it coincidence that the seventh commandment followed the sixth commandment. Neither do I think it coincidence that it precedes the eighth commandment. Adulterous acts of premarital sex, pornographic materials, and extramarital affairs rob what is owed solely to one's spouse. There are certain things that belong to others and to them alone. It is why the Eighth Commandment reads, Thou shalt not steal. For the young girls present this morning, perhaps you would identify that commandment from Dora the Explorer. Swiper, no swiping. Oh, man. And notably, the Eighth Commandment does not provide categories of what one can and cannot steal. The ethical imperative is that we do not swipe, period. Robbery is taking through violence, 
are burglary. It is stealing for someone to hold up a bank. It is stealing for someone to shoplift from a store. Theft is taking by cunning and deception. It is stealing for someone to sell a home without being honest on the seller's disclosure. It is stealing to plagiarize by taking someone else's thoughts and claiming them as your own. Fraud is taking by misrepresentation. It is stealing for someone to not complete his or her tax form accurately. It is stealing for someone to go into a restaurant, order water, and fill it up with soda. <laughs> Gossip and slander is bearing false witness, and it's stealing from a person's name. You steal someone's peace with an unkind word. You steal someone's reputation by an untrue word. Before anyone concludes that he or she does not struggle with this commandment, even those of you who say, I've never filled up my drink with soda when I ordered water, let's think about the fuller ramifications. As with the seventh commandment, I think it best to understand the eighth commandment in light of the creation mandate. Whatever any of us possess, it is actually God's property that he has given to us as a sacred trust. That is precisely why in Genesis 2.15, Adam technically did not own any property. He was just given it to manage. Hear the dichotomy that's at play. We are not entitled to anything. So we do not engage in robbery, theft, fraud, or bearing false witness. We are a respecter of other persons, of their rights, and of their property. You have no business taking from someone else what is not yours. We have been entrusted to some things. And God expects us to steward that which he has entrusted to us, lest we are guilty of stealing. Since today is Father's Day, let me specifically say a word to fathers that we must be good stewards as dads. We must never throw ourselves into our work to such an extent that it is at the expense of our families. Doing so is stealing from them the time and the love that is their God-given right. We must be good stewards as neighbors. Deuteronomy 22 verse 1 says that if we see a kinsman's ox wander off, we are to take it upon ourselves to return it. Exodus 23 verse 4 extends that requirement not just to a kinsman, but to our enemies as well. It would be appropriate to go back and reread the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. The point is this, 
not to have a concern for the property and the well-being of others is stealing from them the kindness that they are due. We must be good stewards as employees. COVID showed us that many people have the capabilities of working from home. But it would be stealing to pretend like you are working, whether you're at home or at the office, actually engaged in personal inclinations rather than professional accomplishments. Those who hire a person are entitled to their work and their workmanship. Not giving it is denying them the respect that they are due. We must be good stewards, those who are employers. It means paying employees an appropriate wage for their time, for their training, for their expertise. Not doing so is stealing from them the dignity that they are due. We must be good stewards as believers. It means giving back unto God that which is his due. For one, we give to him of our resources. Failing to give to the ministries of the Lord, according to Malachi 3, verses 8 and 9, is robbing God. You are stealing from the Lord. The second is that we are to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Whenever we bow down to any type of idol, it steals from God the worship that he alone is due. Whenever we place something before God, we steal from him. We could go on and on with a list of proper stewardship principles. The main thing to be heard is whenever we take and use what we have entirely for ourselves, it is stealing from other people and it is stealing from God. Consider for a moment the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. In this parable, Jesus makes no suggestion that the man was corrupt in his business life. 
In fact, you could certainly infer that he was hardworking, that he was efficient in that which he did. The problem was that his property became the object of his life. We might say that his focus was on the wrong aspect of possession, on the temporal rather than the eternal. Whenever our soul is required of us and the Lord asks, what did you do with all that I entrusted to you? How are we going to respond? Were we always faithful as stewards? Or did we occasionally steal a little from someone else? Or steal a little something from God. The Ten Commandments are convicting. You know what they're supposed to be? They show you and me how far short we fall of what is morally good and right and true. The Apostle Paul says it spot on in Romans 7, 24 and 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This morning, do not dismiss the truth that you are a thief. Not someone else. You are a thief. But do not dismiss, dismiss either that Jesus Christ, don't miss this. Where did Jesus die? He died at the place of the skull, right? And here was his cross. Who was on his right and who was on his left? Two thieves. The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus would be counted among thieves so that he could bear the price of our sin. We are thieves. And one thief looked at Jesus and reviled him. But the other looked at him and said, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. question that I must ask us thieves today is how are we looking upon Jesus? Are we looking with hearts that revile him? Or are we looking at hearts that worship him and that have repented of our sin? 
and say, I will follow you, Christ. Not the ways of this world, but I'll follow you. And I will worship you alone. Today, how will you respond? Will you come and lay your sins upon Jesus? As our musicians come, I would ask that you join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Lord Christ, that you would be counted among thieves, the perfect Lamb of God, and that you would bear my sin for how I have looked at ways at people that I should not look for for ways in which I have taken from people what I should not take, from ways in which I have dishonored you in what I have sought after and in what I have failed to give. I ask, Lord Jesus, for forgiveness. I look to you in repentance and faith for anyone here today who needs to direct his or her heart back unto you, Jesus. May they come, may today they lay their sin upon you. For you bear it, and we bear it no more. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.